A date who also looks like his picture? Unexpected. At Blue Apron, we love the unexpected. With the kind of unexpected ingredients that lead you to discover something new, Blue Apron offers amazing recipes that also let you show off your skills. An at-home dinner date that goes incredibly well? Now that's unexpected. Blue Apron. Expect the unexpected. Visit blueapron.com unique and get $110 off across your first five deliveries plus free shipping off your first box. This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time for Avoid the Maze. And you know, life is a huge maze. We wake up in the morning and we think we know what our plan is for the day. And you know, something happens and maybe our plan changes. In fact, mine did this morning. Uh, I woke up this morning and uh, I looked in the mirror and I said, no, I'm not losing the weight that I thought I was losing. And so uh, I got bit by the Weight Watcher bug and I just signed up for Weight Watchers and now I'm committed for six months. Um, so my journey is changing. Um, I never thought I would ever do this, but something just said to me, I need a change. Uh, and what I like about that is that I've been talking to so many coaches like my guest, Charlene Madden, who helps empower us. Um, you know, so many of us women, um, we know we have a voice, but sometimes we're afraid to use it. So Charlene, welcome to Avoid the Maze and give us a little bit of background like, how is it that you found your voice so that you could help others? Well, first of all, good morning. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, my story, unfortunately, is um, probably really familiar with too many people. I wish it was just a story that I could tell, but I know there's too many people out there that have shared similar experiences. So my story began when I was really young. I was three and a half um, when my parents, their marriage fell apart. My dad was a pretty severe alcoholic, uh, was violent, and his violence was always turned towards my uh, half brothers because they weren't biologically his. So he was extremely abusive towards them. When I was three and a half, my parents divorced, as I said, um, and my dad wouldn't let my mom take my sister and I. So she had to make a decision to take my brothers and save their lives because at the time that was the decision she had to make. Um, we stayed with my dad, but only for a week because he was in no shape to look after children. Ooh, there goes ooh. my chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, we went to live with my grandparents and my grandmother was an absolutely amazing woman, uh, super strong, very uh, independent. And she instilled that in us. She wanted us to get a good education, be strong, be independent, not depend on men. And I probably learned that lesson a little too well. Um, and as wonderful as my grandmother was, my grandfather was a pedophile. Um, so at the age of three and a half, uh, my sister and I both ex started experiencing sexual trauma at his hands. And this actually went on for nine years. And when I was 12 and a half, just before I turned 13, everything came out. Um, my grandfather was arrested. Um, my grandparents divorced. And for me, another family fell apart. Um, I remember sitting in a social worker's office and um, having her pat me on the back and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. 
And at the age of 12 and a half, I had no idea what okay was because I had never had any moments in my life where I really felt okay because my life had been so chaotic. So fast forward, I go into high school, I start struggling with mental health and depression um, because I hadn't had any counseling. There'd been no follow-up after the abuse all came out. It was just kind of like, let's move on. Um, We're talking the mid eighties. So of course that wasn't a thing back then. Um, and my grandmother was just kind of one of those put on a brave face and let's just keep plugging forward. And, you know, that's, that may work for some things, but it really didn't work for that situation. Um, so here I am, I'm in, you know, high school becoming a teenager and struggling with all these emotions and all this trauma. And I start experiencing, as I said, mental health problems. I became suicidal. Um, I started cutting myself as a way to outlet the emotional pain and started fantasizing about taking my life because I didn't feel I had any value. I felt my parents didn't love me. Um, you know, my, I knew my grandmother loved me, but, you know, I just had felt emotionally abandoned by every adult in my life. Absolutely. And um, I started writing as an outlet. And to me, I wrote and poured ink out onto paper rather than blood out because at the time it was usually one or, one or the other. And um, of course, this got the attention of my school, you know, English teacher who sent me to the guidance counselor, who sent me to a school psychologist. I spent an afternoon um, having questionnaires done and assessments. And after four hours, she decided she was going to diagnose me as being manic depressive bipolar. And of course, at you know, I'm 15 at this time. I have no idea what that means. It just to me is another stigma that I'm crazy on top of being the kid who was, you know, molested by her grandfather. Um, because I grew up in a small area, so everybody knew. And um, all I could think of at the time was I didn't want to talk about it, you know, because the psychologist was like, you know, you're gonna be okay. And I'm like, okay, once again, I've got an adult telling me I'm gonna be okay. And she's like, if you want to talk, just come talk. And I was thinking, that's the last thing I want to do. I just want to stick my head in the sand, pretend that this didn't happen. And that's kind of where I started burying everything was at that point. Um, I threw myself into schoolwork because it was important to my grandmother. And I wanted to make her happy because she was the only constant I had in my life. And I wanted to ensure that she loved me because of what I was doing. And she wouldn't leave me is what I thought at the time. And um, so I get through high school, I move away because I think everything is going to change if I can geographically change our location. And it's so funny how we, we think that that makes all the difference. And um, I move away, but I haven't dealt with anything. You know, I've not done any work to deal with the emotions and the struggles that I'm feeling inside. And all I was doing at the time was just drinking. I was, you know, drunk all the time. Um, just to numb the pain of what I was experiencing. And I, you know, had married my high school sweetheart once, you know, once we moved away and had three amazing children, because I thought, you know, if I have kids, I can fix this pattern of my life of this trauma. And if I have kids, I'll have someone that'll love me. And having three kids, the struggle was I had two daughters first and I struggled with uh, a physical connection with them because I felt uncomfortable whenever I showed any kind of physical attention to them. Mm -hmm. And um, I had my son and 
and it was completely different. But with my daughters, I really struggled that way. And, um, and it just kept taking a toll. I knew I wasn't being the best mom that I could be. And I was having guilt in that. And when I was 28, I realized how I had slipped back into a dark place and knew I had to leave the house to try to get myself together, I thought. Um, and I remember sitting down with my husband and saying, I need to leave for a while. I need to try to get my stuff together. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, at this point, our marriage was basically non-existent anyway. So he was, I don't think he cared. And um, I moved out and thought I was going to do the work, but I just sunk deeper and deeper. Now I had the guilt that I had just left the household and I'd left my children. Sure. So to me, it was just generational trauma repeating itself. Um, a month after I left my marriage, I jumped into another relationship because I needed someone to validate me. And to say that, you know, I was worth being loved and that I needed from another relationship. And when they say like attracts like, they are so true um, because the person I got into a relationship with was extremely dysfunctional as well. He was an alcoholic. He was a drug addict, which I didn't realize at the time when we got into the relationship. He had just left a, a dysfunctional relationship. And as the relationship progressed, um, I started to see the violence that was in him from his childhood trauma that he had experienced. So I very quickly started experiencing domestic violence at his hands. And I really felt it fit the narrative of what I felt about myself. I didn't think I deserved anything different. I had so much guilt and shame built up inside, you know, from not only what happened to me as a child, but what I had done, you know, by leaving my children. So I felt every abusive situation I was in, I deserved it. And um, after an extremely abusive night, um, he had left the apartment and I was sitting on the, the floor in the living room and just thinking, I can't live like this. This is no way to live. And I went to my bathroom cabinet and I took out all the pills that were in there and I took all the pills and then I sat down on the couch and started to write my goodbye letters to my children. And I always say, I hope no one has ever experienced that because that is the um, hardest thing you would ever have to do sure. is try to explain to three young children why you're leaving for good, because there's no coming back from that. And it was the best thing that I did in the situation because I realized I was abandoning my children in a final way. And I couldn't do that to them. So I jumped in a cab. I went to the emergency room. I was at the admissions desk telling them how I thought I was overdosing on pills and I collapsed. And I woke up um, with tubes down my throat and my partner next to the bed crying, saying how sorry he was and it would never happen again. I get discharged from the hospital. I get a phone call from my mom who says, I think you need to make a fresh start. You need to make a change. You need to move across the country. We'll help you get on your feet. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm just going to move again because that's going to solve all my problems. Right. And I, you know, I, I realized now that was my mom's way of dealing with her trauma and generational stuff was just to run. So it just fit for her. So that's what I did. I moved across the country thinking things would get better. Um, my partner moved shortly after me, six months later, he moved with the promise that things would be better. And of course it never is because neither of us were doing any work to, to heal. So the next 10 years is just a 
blur of abuse, adultery, uh, drug addiction on his part, um, just complete dysfunction. And um, I remember it was Canada Day. I'm from Canada. So it was Canada Day, which is July 1st. He comes home and says, I'm leaving the house. I'm leaving the marriage or well, relationship. It was marriage at this point. Um, and I was like devastated. You know, I was like, what do you mean you're leaving? Everything we've gone through, you're just leaving. And he moved right in with another woman. So it was an abandonment all over again, sure. of course. But I also felt like, okay, this is my opportunity to, you know, get my stuff together finally. And um, so that's what I did for the next two months. I worked on, you know, really trying to, to fake my way into being okay. Cause that's basically all I was doing was just putting on this mask that I was a master at having on. And um, two and a half months after I'm at work and a police officer walks in and asks to talk to me outside. And he knew me because he had been involved in one of our domestic disputes prior. So he knew where to find me. And he takes me outside and he says, Charlene, I just want, you know, I just got on shift and I came in and saw on the board that, um, your ex-partner has committed suicide and everything in my world got so quiet, you know, like I'm watching people moving around cars, driving, and I couldn't, you know, I didn't hear anything. And I just could feel my kind of world collapsing in on myself. And I thought I have to go tell my kids that their stepdad is, has taken his own life. And I don't know how I'm going to survive this. And as always, I just threw myself into work and pretended, um, I really was so self-absorbed at that time that I didn't think of the trauma that my children were experiencing. Um, I wasn't able to care for myself in that moment, so I couldn't care sure. for them. Um, and about two weeks after he had taken his life, I was sitting with a good friend of mine and I'm thinking, I'm telling her how angry I am. And she's like, well, of course, anger is one of the stages of grief that you're going through. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm not angry. He took his life. I'm angry that he did it first wow. because yeah. now I see everything that happens. I'm, I see the, the emotional repercussions of the people who are left behind. I see the pieces that you have to pick up and how do I do this to the people I love after I've seen it. And I was so torn because I just wanted to leave. I was, I couldn't handle the pain. I couldn't deal with the emotional hurt anymore, but yet I was torn after seeing what happened. And so I just kind of, you know, tried to, to throw myself into life and, and existing. And of course, not doing really any, again, still not doing any of the work. Um, and I remember an episode of sitting in my bathroom with pills in one hand and my gun cabinet key in the other and trying to contemplate which would be the best way to do it. And thinking to myself, my son's in the basement downstairs sleeping. I don't want to shoot myself because he'll have to clean up after me. Right. And that's a strange thing that we women think about. Right. Right. And I'm thinking either way, he's going to find me. So I can't do this right now. And I just, I took a knife out and I cut my legs all up. And I remember sitting there staring down at the bathroom floor that is now covered in blood 
and thinking, what am I doing? I need to get help. So I contacted a, a psychiatrist and I started seeing a psychiatrist. And in the meantime, I had received a life insurance policy for my ex-partner's death. And I'm thinking, okay, do I make plans for the future? What do I do? And I had been renting, so I thought I'm gonna buy a house. I'll provide a home for my, my son because my daughters were gone. And I, I'm seeing this psychiatrist and I remember about three uh, sessions in and I was getting really frustrated because I was like, I know why I'm screwed up. I know why I'm like crazy is what I'm thinking. I just need you to tell me, do this, do this, do this, do this, and I can get better, right? That's the way my right. mind was thinking. And I, you know, I remember saying to her, how did you get better? How did you deal with your mental illness? And her eyes kind of glazed over and she's like, I've never struggled with mental illness. And I'm thinking, then how on earth can you tell me you know how I feel? How can you even relate to anything I'm saying? You, you read it in a book. You don't know what I'm feeling. And I felt such disconnect. And it just seemed to highlight the disconnect I had felt my entire life. It was like, here's one more person that's telling me that I'm going to be okay when they don't know that I'm going to be okay because they've never gone through it. Right. And I quit going to the psychiatrist after that. I had told her I was buying a house and she was so excited because people that are going to commit suicide don't make plans for the future. When in fact, I was planning on just leaving the house as a legacy to my kids. And I made a plan. I took possession of the house at the end of September and I made a plan that a month after that I was taking my life. I was driving to the same location my ex-partner had gone to and I was going to shoot myself as well. And I was just going to make sure that my son was all set up and everything was good. That was all I cared about at that time. And so I'm two weeks out from the date that I have set and I have a coworker, a friend of mine who says, Hey, I'm going to this women's workshop. Do you want to come with me? And I'm thinking that is the last thing I want to do right <laughs> now. And I said, no, I don't think so. And she's like, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go alone. And I'm like, man, like that's my kryptonite, right? Like if someone else is hurting or, you know, if I can help someone else, that's always my priority. Right. So I was like, oh, geez. Okay, fine. I'll go with you to this workshop. So the workshop happens to be the start Saturday, Sunday, the Monday is the date that I've set to take my life. So I pull into the parking lot of that workshop. I have my hunting rifle in the back seat of my car. I have the stick so I can pull the trigger. And I walk into that room at that workshop and I am like feeling sick to my stomach because I am looking at all the women in this room who seem like they've got it all together. They're like excited. They're all talking about making plans for their future. And it just emphasized again, how out of place I felt in the world that I was in. I just felt like once again, I didn't belong. And I just kind of scooted over, took my seat and just tried to, you know, all right, just two days I got to get through. First half of the, the day on Saturday, it was just people talking about finances, which I was like, doesn't matter to me anymore. And uh, health and weight loss. And I was like, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter to me anymore. And then the afternoon session starts and a woman takes the stage and she is bald. She has lost all of her hair from alopecia. And she talks about how getting it as a child, how she struggled 
to find her self-worth and to find self-love and how it had affected her so traumatically and emotionally. But when she made the decision that she was going to love herself as she was and that that was going to be enough, her whole life changed. Now, as I'm sitting there listening to her story, I can kind of hear this little voice in the back of my head that says, what about you? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, what about me? Like, how different would my life have been had I not needed the validation from everyone else to prove my worth, that, that proved that I was worthy of living on this earth and having a happy life? What if I didn't need that? What if my own love was enough? And I kind of just sloughed it off, right? The next person gets on stage and it's a woman who's dealt with mental health struggles for two decades. So 20 years, she has lived with depression and being suicidal and how by her learning to accept her depression and her mental illness as part of herself and loving that part as well. And instead of fighting it, accepting that it's part of her and learning to live with it. And again, I'm sitting there and I can hear that little voice in my back of my head that says, what about you? And I thought, yeah, how different would my life have been if I could have learned to live with my mental illness in a healthy functioning way? How different would it have been? And again, I'm thinking, okay, well, it doesn't matter. It's too late now. Anyway, next speaker gets on stage, last person for the day. And it's a gentleman who gets on stage and starts talking about his alcohol addiction, his addiction to painkillers his mental health struggles, his broken marriage, and how he had spent a year trying to find a perfect mix of painkillers and alcohol so he could commit suicide but make it look like an accidental overdose. And he happened to have visitation with his kids, overnight visitation, which never happened. Um, and on the night that he had the visitation with his kids was the night that he found that perfect mix. And he was laying on his couch knowing that he was overdosing as his kids were there. And he heard a voice in the back of his head that said, no, not today, not like this, there's more. And he got to his phone, he called 911, got help, got clean, got sober, got into counseling and therapy. And now he was going around and sharing his story in hopes that he could help other people who are suffering. And I'm sitting there in that chair and I'm kind of having this moment of what is going on? What is going on right now? I'm at an event that I didn't want to come to. And I've just heard three speakers talk about the three areas of my life that I have struggled with for decades, self-love, self-worth, mental illness, and wanting to die. There, this is not by accident that I am here right now. And I'm like, what if I could take all of my experiences and I could share it in hopes of saving another life, just like he was doing for me in that moment. And it was like a light bulb, like the light switch went off. And I said, no, this is what my purpose is. This is why uh, I'm here. I'm here to hear these messages and I'm here to make a decision. And that decision is to live. And that's what I did that day. I, you know, I approached the, the speaker or the, the organizer of the event. And I said, Hey, I want to talk to you and let you know about what this event meant for me. So I told her and I said, yeah, I'd love to come back next year. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like the first time we were actually making plans for the future 
really meaning them. Right. Because like I had found, and that's what I said, I, in that moment, I found my purpose. And that's what had created, you know, the change. I, I loved myself. I made a decision that no matter what, I was going to be enough. If I was going to spend the rest of my life alone, that was going to be okay with me because my own self-love was going to be enough. I was going to stop letting fear control my life because I had let it stop me from doing so many amazing things. I was going to get the help that I needed for my mental illness. I was going to learn to live with it and accept it as it's part of me. It's always going to be there. And I was going to go out and share my story in hopes that just someone else hearing my story would help them. The next year I went back to that workshop and I spoke. And I remember saying, as I got off that just before I got off stage, I went, my purpose for being here and sharing my story is that I can give hope to one person and if I can save one person's life, everything I have gone through, every struggle, every heartache, every pain has been worth it. And I got off the stage and I was walking out of the room and a woman approached me and she said, you know how you said you wanted to save a life? I just want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked away. And I was kind of sitting there and I'm in shock and I'm like, okay. And then I can hear in the back of my mind let's go find another one. So for me, every day is just about going and finding that other one, that person who needs hope, who needs to know that it's okay. You know, you can get Absolutely. through this. It's hard. It's tough, but you know, there is hope and just don't give up. So that's what I do now every day out there sharing my story in hopes that I can touch one life. So, and, and, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm older than you. I grew up in an environment that was very loving, didn't have the struggles that you had, but I still had a ton of insecurities. And uh, my family always would say to me, you know, you shouldn't feel that way. And it's like, but you can't tell somebody how to feel. Mm -hmm. um, so much of my life, I thought, I want to be more like that person. I want to wear what that person's, I want to eat what they're eating because I didn't feel enough. But when you hear stories like yours, you stop and say, maybe I didn't have it exactly that way, but I can understand. I can stand in your shoes to a certain degree mm. and say, yeah, you know, mental illness, I think we all suffer from it to some degree. Uh -huh. um, in my lifetime, I was told you push it under the rug. You don't talk about it. Yeah. When you're having those bad moments, go in your room, close your door. Well, what happens when you isolate? As you know, you do all the wrong things. Uh -huh. But when you're out amongst people, sometimes you pick up on those good vibes. You may not realize you're doing it, but obviously you had on and off over all those years. Did your coworker have a sense of what you were going through? Is that why she really invited you? No, and we've talked about it. Um, no one knew. Like okay. I, once I started coming out, people were like, wow, we had no idea. And I was like, I've had a lifetime, you know, at that point I was uh, 45, right? So I'm thinking I've had 30 years of mastering this mask that I wear, you know, and I was always the, um, I was always the confident, 
person. Like everyone thought, oh, you know, I mean, I'm covered in tattoos. You know, I walk into a room and everybody was like, wow, like, because I'm like, I'm probably the most insecure person you'll ever meet. And people are like, no, there's no way. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. I just, I hide it really, really well, which is what you learn to get really good at hiding your true self. So, so now I don't want people to think that you are totally recovered because we're never totally recovered. Okay. Um, and it's really important for those who are listening to understand that, you know, we call this show avoid the maze for a real good reason. We are going to walk into walls. We're going to make some of those mistakes again and again. But if we become more intentional to what we're doing in life, if we're listening, if we're not judgmental, I mean, you know, 30 years ago, probably if I would have met Charlene walking down the street with tattoos, I came from a different world. My first reaction would have been, I'm not going to listen to anything that she has to say. Uh -huh. But the reality of it is that the tattoos don't make you. They may help you define certain things in your life, uh -huh. but they're not who you really are. And when you listen to what you've been through, um, it's not your fault that you've had all these things happen to you. Uh -huh there were outside forces and we all love to tell each other, Oh, don't worry. You're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest son um, is on the autism spectrum. You wouldn't notice it if I didn't tell you. Um, but once he was diagnosed, his school system said every year we're going to announce this in his classroom. So his friends will understand if he acts differently. And in the beginning, it sounded okay. It sort of made sense, but then it became a stigma. Absolutely. And yep. people started reading into it. Oh, if you're autistic, you're going to do this. Oh, if, and he started doing those things, uh -huh. not because, you know, it was natural to him. It was because he was basically told to do them. Yeah. Um, and then he'd have teachers actually pat him on the back and say you're going to be okay well he didn't know what that was absolutely yeah. and luckily he became a young adult and he did some research on his own he believed in his own medical team and he finally said one day you know what mm -hmm. i'm going to do this and yeah. he he has worked through it um but if we start labeling people if we start mm -hmm. saying well, because you were um, sexually abused as a child, you know, Charlene, I'm just going to look at you differently for the rest uh -huh. of your life. Uh -huh. No, can't be yeah. that way. Yeah. So how are your kids with all this? Because now you're open, you're talking about it, you're sharing your life. Um, they're okay. That The relationship is a work in progress. Um, and part of that, uh, my daughters both struggle with mental illness as well. So um, being able to uh, come at it with a different perspective for me is is a little better. Um, just to go back on on something you said, because to me, like navigating the maze, like avoiding the maze, um, 
we kind of need a compass. So for me, understanding what that compass is, is, is two real things, well, three real things. And that's what changed for me was, yes, the self-love, but also radical honesty. Um, because what you had said about, uh, yeah, I didn't have any control over what had happened to me as a child. But as I became an adult, I controlled the decisions that I made. And getting really honest about that. And um, because when I work one-on-one -on -one with women, I don't allow the, but you don't understand what they did. I do understand, but you, you have to take your power back. And part of that is taking self-responsibility and going, I'm in control of the choices that I make now. Right. And that is navigating your maze. That's your compass is going, okay, I am, I have control. I have that power. And that's the most, the greatest thing to understand is that we have the power to change the life that we're living now. And it's by making good, good, you know, or better decisions. Right. right. And it's getting the tools um, with my kids. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter started to see the change that I was making. Um, and it rippled out to her. She started making changes in her life. And I actually held my workshop virtually. I do a workshop once a year and I held it virtually this year in November. And I actually asked her if she would come and do um, the Sunday morning meditation session in, you know, first thing to start the day off. And she said, yes. And she was so nervous doing it, but she came in and did it. And then I remember at the end of the day, she messaged me back and she said, mom, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And it was the most incredible thing that I've ever heard, you know, and I always say, I don't do what I do um, for accolades, for validation, for anything. I do it because it's my purpose and I want to be of service to people who are struggling, but it sure was nice to have your kids say, oh, I'm proud of you. <laughs> so absolutely. So, yeah. so absolutely. it's definitely, it's definitely an improving relationship. So and you know you use a word that i think is so important um that many of us sometimes don't even know what our purpose is or we claim we don't know our purpose um prior to starting my podcast 10 years ago um, i was working in corporate america loved my actual job did not like the the culture i was in and that culture totally depressed me but i didn't understand it because i was working so many hours because i liked my job i thought i was happy but every friday my manager would have a team meeting and everybody was probably 15 to 20 years younger than me and I felt like I belonged, except on Fridays, because she'd go around the room and she'd say, what's your favorite meal? What's your favorite restaurant? Something was your favorite. And I would sit there and I couldn't relate. And I didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And they'd get to me and I'd say, I don't have a favorite restaurant. I don't have a favorite movie. I don't have a favorite song. And I started hearing myself that I didn't have any of these things. Um, when I left corporate America and I was so down and out, I was sitting in a doctor's office and the doctor said to me, you don't have to have a favorite. It's okay. And I said, but everybody else did. And he said to me, but you're not everybody else. Who are you? Mm. 
And that's when I started realizing that it was the culture that really got me down mm -hmm. and I allowed it to. Absolutely. So yes. as an adult, you know, we sometimes fall back into those childhood habits that we want everybody to tell us what to do and how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I applaud you for pushing through, going to that uh, seminar. Um, after this first speaker, a lot of people would have left because they would have said, hey, you know, she's talking about something that I can't relate to. But you waited to hear the next person and then the next. And that takes a lot of strength. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it. Uh, we never know the moments that are going to, you know, impact our lives. And it's like I say to everyone, like I knew other people had suffered from childhood sexual trauma. I knew other people suffered from domestic violence and, and mental illness. I knew all that. But to hear people be so authentic and so raw and so open about it. That's why to me, stories are so important. That's where the connection happens is through stories. And it, it does, it creates that relatability and the connection of, hey, like you were saying, like that person, yeah, I may not be just like the other person next door, but I can connect to you in that aspect. And it helps us not feel alone because you know we're one person in seven billion and with as many people around us as there is sometimes you feel so isolated and so alone so for me my purpose is i just don't want people to feel alone and i always say every podcast that i'm on i try to say to people you know if you're ever feeling in a dark space and you're feeling alone and you're feeling lost and you feel like you have no one to reach out to because you don't have anyone who understands what you're going through find me on facebook message me. I am available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I will come and sit in the dark with you. Now it's probably going to be virtually, but <laughs> I will sit in the dark with you because I don't want anyone to ever feel alone. And I will sit with you until you're, you're ready to rise up, but we will rise up together. So I love that. That is wonderful. So how can our listeners find you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. So you can find me at Charlene Madden, speaker and author, um, my workshop, which is you can that's my logo in the back there um you can find it at ignite your life bc i am on all the the social media the instagram charlene ann madden linkedin TikTok. i'm dabbling in <laughs> that's a that's a comfort zone thing but i'm dabbling in TikTok. so and it, yeah everything so but uh, and i have a two websites i have charlene madden uh speaker.com which is for my speaking and um, I have Ascension Wellness Studio, which is um, the wellness work I do where I do my one-on-one -on -one coaching and I'm also a Reiki practitioner. So I do my Reiki work out of that. So how, how I'm wonderful. everywhere. You can find me everywhere. Okay. Well, I have to thank podmatch.com because if it weren't for this great organization, um, I probably never would have met you. Um, even though I go searching all the time for individuals like yourself, because just like you, um, I have this mission in life. My purpose in life is to make life just a little bit better. And I'm, I'm not trained in that way other than as a communications major, but I believe like you do telling our stories, 
sharing our thoughts, uh, being willing to open up. Um, sometimes I feel raw and naked after a podcast, but I will tell you that usually it brings out some really good information that helps me get better and somebody who's listening. So uh, just keep up the good work. And I'm here too. So if you ever need to talk to somebody in the dark, don't forget, um, you know, I'll be here listening for you and not judging because you know what? We never know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. So Absolutely. again, thank you for joining us and have thank a you. beautiful day. Thank you as well. Thanks for having me. Sure. Bye-bye.